Welcome to the Salt Church Podcast. We're a church that meets in the heart of Wollongong. Come and visit us on Sundays, 10am and 5pm at 275 Kira Street. We'd love to meet you. Hello, I'm Andy, uh, one of the pastors here at Salt, and a big welcome to you. Uh, If you're visiting, we love that you're here with us, uh, and um, a special welcome to you if you're not visiting, if you're just part of Salt. It's great you're here as well. I hope you had a good week. I I was being pretty sick this week. I had about 14 naps over the last few days. Um, It's been good. (laughs) Uh, Some of you have been praying that I'd be well enough to to be able to preach this afternoon, so I appreciate that. I don't think anyone was was praying particularly as hard as Michael was. He was keen for a week off (laughs) preaching, (laughs) but I'm feeling much better, so um, appreciate that. Thank God for antibiotics. Have you ever had one of those moments, though, where something happens, something Something happens that changes everything. You ever had one of those moments where something you might have known was true was brought front and centre? And with complete clarity, you see how important this thing really is. Uh, this, once, this thing was once peripheral and it's now central to your life. That happened to me with blood. Um, I've, always underst- I've always appreciated blood. I've always done my best to keep blood inside my body. And uh, it wasn't until I was standing in a hospital holding a a consent form uh, for my child for them to get a life-saving blood transfusion that I realized how important blood is, and particularly blood donors. Um, There was a complete stranger somewhere in Australia that had taken an hour out of their week to give up blood. They were O negative, which is the universal donor, and uh, give it blood so that my kid could get this blood and be saved. I'd, I'd just kind of taken that for granted. But in that moment, I'd had complete clarity on how important blood is. And it changed me. I've given blood a couple of times in my life, not really particularly. But suddenly I was like, I need to give blood, like, ever as often as I can. So I started going down the road, there's free parking underneath, they give you a milkshake, Uh, they gave me one of these little keychains, and it turns out I'm O negative as well, so I'm the universal donor, Uh, and so they... If I don't give blood, they call me up. Um, and, uh, but it's good. And I, I do it. And I do it regularly now because I've seen how important it is. I've had that moment. I've, I've realized how important this thing is with complete clarity. And in this, this today's passage, this afternoon's passage, we'll see from the Apostle Paul, he has that similar kind of experience that he went through, a moment where he has complete clarity. His course of his life is changed. And with it, our lives as well. We're going to see that moment and see the flow and effects for us and what that looks like. So let's pray and then we'll jump into this part of Acts. Now, Lord God, we, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to us, uh, that we can know you by it. We pray that your spirit would be at work now. Uh, help us, uh, help us to, to read your word and uh, to love you more from it. Amen. Well, this is our second last week in the book of Acts as a church. Uh, it's been 28 weeks um, over the past three years, off and on, and we've been working through the book of Acts, and we've seen a lot over those 28 weeks. Uh, from the start, we saw the gospel message of Jesus starting with this small, kind of terrified group of disciples, really, really scared, and uh, the Holy Spirit comes on them, and it just explodes, and God's mission around the Roman Empire just takes off. It starts in Israel, into Europe, all across the Roman Empire, God's unstoppable mission spreading around. And so here's the question that I want us to explore together. Uh, 
Is the gospel of Jesus a threat to our world? So I don't think the answer is straightforward. I think that's going to help us understand a bit about how we share that gospel of Jesus as well. Is the gospel of Jesus a threat to our world? At first, it looks like the answer is yes. The gospel of Jesus is a threat to our world because it's divisive. Now we see that Paul is preaching the gospel of Jesus. <clears throat> Some people, they're so offended that a riot starts up. We saw that uh, last week in Acts 22, chapter 22, verse 22. It says, The crowd listened to Paul until he started talking about the gospel going to all people. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. They're so upset they want him to die. Paul gets arrested. Uh, This riot starts. Paul gets arrested. The Romans want to kind of try and understand what's going on. Why are people so upset about this? He appears before two different governors. Uh, they're not really sure what to do about about Paul. It's not really. It's a bit about out of their about out of their league. It's not the typical kind of Roman court case. There doesn't seem to be any Roman laws that have been broken. There's kind of accusations around Jewish law and Jewish practices. They don't they don't really understand. They don't know what to do with Paul, and so he waits. He waits in jail for two years, more than two years, and just waits. And I assume writes letters that we've now got in the Bible to churches. He's waiting in jail until one day King Agrippa, the king over that region under Caesar, arrives. He arrives in the area with his sister Bernice. They're visiting the area of Caesarea. And King Agrippa grew up in that area. He grew up as a Jew. He was raised as a Jew. So he knew about the Jewish religion and Jewish customs and Jewish law. And the governor is quite pleased because now he's got someone who actually might understand what's going on. Uh, they, so they talk a little bit over. Uh, and King Agrippa thinks the case sounds kind of interesting. He wants to hear from Paul. Perhaps, perhaps he's heard about Paul or he's heard about this new Christian movement that's kind of springing up around the empire. And they decide that tomorrow they'll meet Paul in court, have a hearing, get to hear from Paul himself. And that brings us to chapter 26. And most of chapter 26, which we read, is Paul defending himself. Uh, we, read it, uh, we read it before, so I'm not going to go into through all of it, but I will kind of pull out a couple of things that might be helpful for us. And as Paul defends himself before the king, his defense can kind of be broken up into three chunks. Before meeting Jesus, meeting Jesus, then after meeting Jesus. So firstly, uh, Paul talks about his life before meeting Jesus. He talks about he is a block, a blockage to the gospel. He did whatever he could to stop the gospel and be a blockage to the Christian movement And we can see that in, uh, have a look at verse 9, chapter 26, verse 9. He says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Whatever it took, Paul opposed Jesus and the threat that the gospel brought. Try to stop it. But secondly, that's the first chunk. Secondly, he talks about the miraculous meeting of Jesus. The way Jesus appears to him. And what Jesus tells him to do. And we can see there's a bit of a chunk of that, but um, particularly verse 16. uh, Jesus says, Now stand up, now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you and appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. In the other parts of the Bible, Paul talks about the great mercy and the great forgiveness that Jesus has shown him. And this is that moment. This is that moment of clarity. This is that moment where he realizes. 
in an instant, he's realized that everything that he's been doing up until that point has been wrong. That he was being trying to kill God's chosen Messiah, the King, the Christ. But instead of death, which Paul feels like that's what he deserves now, having treated God this way, instead of death, he receives life from God. And that's the third thing that Paul goes on to talk about, the transformation that's brought about with this new life after meeting Jesus. He becomes a proponent of the Christian movement. No longer working to hinder the spread of Christianity, the spread of the gospel, but doing anything he can to propel it forward. And we capture that in verse 19. He says, So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. So Jesus gives Paul a vision, this mission, and Paul now does everything he can to share the gospel that he so vehemently opposed. So there's the three chunks. That's kind of his defense. And as Paul defends himself, he's also defending the gospel. He's not just defending himself. He's actually defending the gospel and proclaiming the gospel. And there's four things, four aspects of the gospel that, that we can kind of see that Paul tells us here about the gospel. Uh, firstly, we're told that it's from God. Uh, we can see that in Acts uh, chapter 26, verse 6 to 8. He says, And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I'm on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it's because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? The gospel... This, this gospel threat, really, that Paul's preaching is a fulfillment of all the things that God has promised in the Old Testament. All those things have come to fruition. Jesus is the promised one. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. The one sent from God. This whole thing is from God. Which flows into the second thing. It's about Jesus. It's from God it's about Jesus. That's the big thing of the gospel too. Have a look at verse 15. Now then I asked, this is Paul, I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you and appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. So the, the mission Jesus gives Paul is to testify as to what he's seen about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And what exactly is he testifying to? Uh, have a look at the second half of verse 22. He says, I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and the Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer, and that as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. That Jesus died, that Jesus rose again, that Jesus proclaims light to all people, to Jewish people, to non-Jewish people. It's all about Jesus. That's what the gospel is. So it's from God, it's all about Jesus. Thirdly, it requires repentance. Because of who Jesus is, because of what he has done, we need to start following him as our king. Verse 19 picks that up. Uh, so then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. Because of who Jesus is, we need to start following him. We need to repent. Turn around. 
Paul is preaching that people should turn from whoever they were following previously, whatever they were living for previously, and turn to God. And he also mentions the fourth thing there, um, that, requ- uh, that this requires repentance and it requires obedience. Uh, we picked that up at the end, that, end that, that verse I read there. There's not enough just to turn. You actually need to keep living that way. You can't just turn and then turn back. You've got to turn and then keep going that direction. So we've been living as rebels towards God and as God's king. We need to stop living that rebellious life, repent, and start living God's way. Be obedient to God. Live his way. God changes us. God sanctifies us. He changes us and helps us so we can live his way. And that's Paul's defense to King Agrippa as he summarizes the gospel that is from God. It's all about Jesus. It requires repentance and it requires obedience. Pretty much he's saying, God called me to this mission. I'm just being faithful to what God's called me to do. And Paul here, he gives a better, uh, better defense of the gospel than any of us really could. And as he does that, he, he outlines the gospel so clearly. How do people respond to that message? Amazement and conversion and the whole, they start a church out of everyone that's in the court. No, Festus interrupts Paul to claim he's crazy. Verse 24, at this point, Festus, the governor, interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. You're great learning. He's driving you insane. This is a typical response to sharing the gospel with someone. Uh, Laughter, ridicule, uh, mocking. Sometimes it's not that extreme. Sometimes it's just like a little bit of a judgment, like a, uh, okay, Uh, sure. People, but people are threatened by it. People are threatened by it. That's not always the response. That's sometimes the response. You can expect that. Laughing, mocking, People being threatened, but not always. Sometimes you share the gospel when it's met with acceptance and joy and thanksgiving and gratitude. And we see that. We've seen that all throughout Acts as well. The gospel is doing both things at the same time with different groups of people. It's divisive. It divides people. And there's something in our our household at home that's extremely divisive. Uh, Coriander. Um, does anybody, anybody, I'm not sure if there is anybody, anybody like coriander? Yep. Oh, okay. <laughs> hold on, hold on, hands up. Uh, okay, most people. <laughs> um, anyone not like coriander? Yeah, all right, good. Uh, for those who do like coriander, how would, like, what's a word you would use to describe coriander? Yummy? Fresh? Someone said green this morning, I was like, yeah, that's... Flavoursome? Yep. Um, for those who didn't like coriander, how would you describe coriander? Off? off? Just feels... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, like I can eat it, but I'd prefer it wasn't on there. Like if someone put grass on my burger, I'd eat it, but I'd rather you didn't put grass on my burger. Um, someone else has said uh, dishwashing detergent. Tastes like dishwashing detergent um, or compost. Um, yeah, just kind of, it's the same thing. It's not like there's two different corianders and you're like, oh, I hope I get the good coriander this week. Uh, no, it's the same thing. It just divides people. And I can't understand why it, it, it's, it is bad. Um, it's similar with the gospel. 
Paul understood that gospel is divisive. It's the same thing, but he sees it divide people into two groups, and he wrote about it in 2 Corinthians. He wrote this letter to a church in Corinth. We've got it here, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. It's on the screen as well. He says this, But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal possession, possession, uh, procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. Who is equal to such a task? The gospel is divisive, and far more than coriander, coriander, it's a threat as well. Because it's more than just the smell of compost or dishwashing soap to some people. It's a smell of death. The gospel smells like death. But for others, the gospel is the sweet smell of life. It's the same gospel. Different people react different ways. And so we can expect that people are going to be offended by it. Some people will be offended by it. They might even hate us. And interestingly, in that passage, Paul says it's not the gospel, actually, that smells good or bad. It's the person sharing the gospel that stinks or has the sweet smell of life. We've seen Paul preaching the gospel about Jesus And we've seen, at the same time, both riots and churches starting up in cities. The same message. Some people accept it, other people reject it. So we shouldn't be surprised when people are offended by the gospel of Jesus. It's not a new thing. It's always been that way. And Paul's not surprised by it as well. So is the gospel a threat to our world? Yes, it divides people. It's divisive. It causes both life transformation and riots and hatred. It's a threat. And yet, we'll keep looking, the Roman officials actually don't think it's really that much of a threat. It's probably an overreaction. They don't think Paul's a threat at all. And in some ways, they're correct. The gospel of Jesus is not a threat to our world because Jesus' kingdom is not from this world. After hearing the evidence, King Agrippa and Festus realized that Paul, it's not a really, why has he even been arrested for? Have a look at verse 30. The king rose, and with him, with him the governor and Bernice, and those sitting with them, and they left the room. They began saying to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. They don't think Paul's done anything wrong. They don't understand. Their main concern, to be honest, though, is keeping peace in the region. That's the main thing they're worried about. Keeping peace so that people can pay taxes. That's really the main thing the Romans care about. Uh, The Romans, they ruled with an iron fist. Their empire was massive. And they just kept conquering more and more kingdoms, more and more empires and more and more um, countries under their rule to subdue them. And to keep them under, they taxed them heavily and had a really strong military presence to make sure there was no trying to... No one's trying to uprise and overthrow them. And so that caused a lot of tension because there were a lot of people throughout the empire who didn't like the Romans, who didn't want to be ruled by the Romans, didn't want to pay taxes, didn't want to have to send their men to armies and things. And so there's always terrorist groups, underground terrorist groups popping up trying to overthrow the Romans. And so they were really careful, really cautious about any sort of riot, any sort of activity going on. They'd clamp down on it, smash it, squash it out. That's why they jumped on Paul so quickly. In fact, we're told earlier, they think he's the leader of an Egyptian terrorist army. 
terrorist group from Egypt that's kind of risen up previously. But once they hear from Paul, once they hear what he's talking about, the gospel, they realize it's a religious issue. This is not a political issue. They're not concerned. They don't think Paul or the gospel that he's sharing is a threat. And the same thing happened, interestingly, with Jesus. Pontius Pilate, who was the governor of the area 25 years before Festus, he had Jesus on trial. A very similar situation with a very similar outcome. In fact, flip flip over uh, John chapter 18. uh, Flip to the left and we'll look at John chapter 18, verse 33. Right, verse 33. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoning Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate's thinking, if, if Jesus is claiming to be Caesar, that's a punishable offense. I can understand that. Verse 34. Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What, what is it you have done? Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this, he went out to the Jews, gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. It's very similar. Very similar, isn't it? Uh, Both Jesus and Paul, they've got these kind of charges brought against them by these Jewish leaders. They both appear before the Roman governor. Both governors find that they've done nothing to deserve death. And the only difference is that God's plans need Jesus to die and need Paul to live, which is what happens. And Christianity is not seen to be a threat to the Roman world because Christianity is very happy to fly under the political radar. Uh, it's, it's different to Islam. Uh, Islam is, is got Sharia law, the idea of Sharia law, which is an Islamic political state. Uh, Islamic teaching has a whole political system written into it and with instructions on how to roll out this political Islamic system. But Christianity, we don't have anything like that in the Bible. We don't have a rules for how to set up a Christian government and overthrow whatever it is the country you're living in. In fact, the Bible says the opposite. The Bible says to submit to earthly rulers and our earthly authority that are in place. Don't try and overthrow them. Submit to them. Live under them. Be at peace. I think the big reason for this is because Jesus says his kingdom is not of this world. He doesn't, he's not, his thing is not having worldly rule and conquering cities and that was not what Jesus was about. God's kingdom is in fact bigger than that. It's all-encompassing. And Jesus is the king over that. And so as his followers, we're no longer living primarily for this world. We're living for the life to come. That's what's more important. Which I find really hard. I find really hard. I'm always tempted to overcapitalize on the things of this world and invest too heavily in them. Uh, to put my energy and hope and the attention in the, the temporary things that I can see and touch and the now. And I forget about the eternal things to come. Uh, this, this kind of became a reality for me in my final year of uni. I was studying a design degree. And um, as part of our design, our last semester of uni, the, um, the lecturer had organized guest lectures to lecturers to come in uh, from around the place, uh, the key designers 
they kind of this this collaboration group they were they'd set up uh, in Sydney called uh, Design is Kinky. I don't know why they called it that, but anyway. Uh, so I had all these kind of these star designers running these big big studios with big big uh, clients that everyone kind of knew and everyone thought their jobs are so good and they came in and talked about the work and how they did it and all these sorts of things and the big projects they pulled off and it was really good and at the end of each lecture there was a question time and I asked the same question every time because I was trying to work out uh, I was about to start full-time work and what does that look like for me as a Christian to be in the workplace and how do I balance that and how do I juggle that and how do I live for with Jesus my king and think about the future but still have work and trying to think about all these kind of things and so I asked each lecturer how many hours a week do you work and it was at least 70 generally 70 hours a week um, which is not a lot in in some industries Um, but I thought 70 hours a week that's 10 hours a day seven days a week that's a a lot and some of them were proud that to do to do more um, because they and they were pulling off that's what it took to pull off big projects and I thought that's just the boss. Like the people, especially the juniors in the studios, you've got to work more than your boss. That's, you're going to be working close to you know, 80, 90 hours a week. Uh, I don't think I'm going to... How, how am I going to do that? And so trying to work out, think through the future and what does that look like for me as a Christian? And we had to do this reflective exercise, a hand in an assignment on our thoughts on the lectures and all these types of things. And so I handed in this. Uh, I made a website and I called it Design is Stinky. And, uh, and I said, it's, I won't read the whole thing, but it said, as I'm not willing to make design the top priority in my life, I came to the realization that I will never become anything more than an average designer. I don't want a career, I just want a job. This is the truth I've come to realize, design is stinky. Now, uh, I handed this into, <laughs> into my lecturer, uh, my assignment, not knowing what was going to, you know, how are they going to respond to that? Uh, they're going to fail me, like this, it's, um, but it turns out she'd been burnt out from the industry and she loved it. <laughs> I got a, a high distinction. Um, so there you go. Um, but it was a really helpful moment of me, for me because uh, trying to think about the future and think, seeing all these star designers, uh, but realising what the cost was for them, that they had to invest so much of their time, you know, Pretty much all, almost all of their waking hours were spent on work, doing these big, amazing projects. But that was it. That was, all, that was almost all there was to their life. Fully devoted to building a website that lasted two years. Or a magazine that was, came out every month and then was gone. That was it. And I was thinking, I'm a, I'm not a, I'm a citizen of God's kingdom. And so my priorities are different. My priorities are different. That's a wrestle. And today there are things that distract me. They seem just as important. Uh, they're right in front of my face. And it makes sense to go all in on that thing because it's right in front of me. Wherever I go, I can, that's what I can see. But I need to remember to look beyond the things that we can see, the things that we can touch. And so what are the things that are in front of you? What are those, those things that are distracting you from God's kingdom? Good things. They're probably good things. But they can be a distraction. It might be work. It might be work, or if you're at uni, it's preparing for work. It might not be. It might be relationships. It might be family. It might be making your house or your apartment look nice. It might be thinking about your next adventure or your next overseas holiday or whatever that thing 
is those things can demand our attention. They can threaten to swallow up our vision of Christ. And you find yourself, you've devoted yourself wholly to those things, to those temporary things, the things of this world, this worldly kingdom. So how do you you make sure those things don't become too big? That might be the problem. But for some of us, it's not so much the problem. We're already clinging to God's kingdom. We're well aware of the shortfalls of this world. We keep trusting God. You're a citizen of his kingdom. He will not disappoint you. Keep clinging to that. Whatever it is, whatever your struggle is, look to the future. Remember, you're a citizen of God's eternal kingdom. Paul found himself face to face with King Agrippa, with all of the power of Rome behind the king. And that could have easily have consumed Paul's thoughts. He's in this massive court this very imposing guy. You expect Paul to answer questions as quickly as possible, do whatever to try and appease this guy, try and get set free. But no, he tries to, he tries to convert the king. Agrippa really is not on Paul's mind. Jesus is. And I wonder if this is what Paul was thinking. 1 Colossians, 1 Colossians, no, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 17. This is something Paul wrote to a group of Christians He says this about Jesus. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rules or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. King Agrippa might be wearing a robe, But the only king that Paul sees is Jesus. Paul sees Jesus. So let's not cling too tightly to the things of this world. We follow Jesus, part of an eternal kingdom. His kingdom is not of this world, which means we are not of this world anymore. So is the gospel of Jesus a threat to our world? Well, initially it looks like Paul and the gospel he preaches is a threat to the Romans, but upon closer inspection they realize it's not. And yet when you dig a little bit deeper, you see the gospel of Jesus is a massive threat. Not just to the Romans, but to our whole world because the gospel of Jesus is a threat because we're calling people to repent. And that's offensive. And this is what got Paul in trouble in the first place. He was calling people to repent, turn back to God and be saved. And people don't like to hear that they need to change. But that's the message of the gospel. It's a message of change. We can see this in our, the last bit of chapter 26, Paul's interaction with the king. Have a look at verse 25. Uh, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because I was not, it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. Paul is incredibly bold. 
And Paul prays in front of everyone that they would become like him, become a Christian. Paul doesn't think the king and everyone else should be happy with their current position. He prays that God would change them. We don't hear anything else about King Agrippa or Governor Festus after this account. Uh, From here, Paul sets off to Rome for his appeal. We'll hear about that next week. But I like to think that Paul left an impression on these Roman rulers. And uh, it'd be cool if one day, <clears throat> be cool if one day, you get to heaven and you see Agrippa or uh, Festus, and you're like, "Hey, God answered Paul's prayer." Um, you know, that may not happen. Uh, whether or not they start following Jesus or not, that's the main thing. That's what Paul wants. Out of the whole situation, that's what he wants. And I think we can learn a lot from Paul. So, th- to finish up, here's three tips from Paul. Firstly, uh, be bold. Take risks. We need to use wisdom, but don't be timid. We can be bold as we share the gospel. We have such a great message of love and hope to share with people. Such a positive thing. It is divisive, but it's a gospel message of love. Uh, Have a look at this passage. This is a a passage that Paul wrote to a church uh, in Ephesus. Uh, This is talking about the love that God has for people. This is the message that we get to share. I pray, this is Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16 to 19. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the measure of all the fullness of God. Being filled with the fullness of the measure of God. That's amazing. That's the thing that we get to preach. That's the thing that we get to share. The good news about our King King Jesus. We can be bold with that message. It's such a positive thing. Be bold. Don't be embarrassed. Secondly, though, you can expect opposition as you do that. While Paul is under house arrest, awaiting the rest of his trial, he writes letters like that one to Ephesians uh, to the other different churches that he's planted. And most of these churches are facing opposition uh, because it is hard to be a Christian. He doesn't say, just, you've got opposition from people, just be clear, just be very clear with people about what it is you're saying and people will understand and they'll be okay. Uh, He doesn't say that. He says instead, expect and endure hardship. It's going to happen. Uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 3, he says this, Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. The gospel of love, the gospel of Jesus is divisive. So you can expect opposition. But even in that opposition, God's using that to grow you and to shape you for his future kingdom. So you can be bold, expect opposition, and remember that everyone needs to hear the gospel. Everyone needs to be saved, including the king. Paul even preaches to the king. Paul's a great example of sharing the gospel with anyone who's going to listen. And I think the reason we don't do that, or the reason I don't do that, is because we forget about the need. 
We forget about the, the needs there. We can forget about the life to come. All we can see is this life. And we see people around us, our neighbors, our friends, our, and people look okay. They look like they're doing all right. Things look under control. And we forget that Christ will return and judge everyone based on whether they're trusting Jesus or not. That things are not okay. That people are not fine the way they are. We forget. And so we don't share the gospel message of Jesus because we don't look past the, the here and now. It's a bit like saving a child an overseas child or a child in need. And I was reminded of this uh, little comedy skit, I'll finish with this, uh, that uh, helps bring things to the front and brings about change. Oh, sorry, we need some sound. Excuse me, sir. Do you have a moment to save the children? I'm sorry, man. I'm, I'm running late and I just don't have time to chat. I right understand now. that. So, I understand that. It's just that every minute another child dies unnecessarily, a child who could live a fruitful life with the help of just one small donation. Yeah, I'm, I don't have the time. Yeah. Sorry. I understand that. It's just all it takes is one dollar to save a child. <sighs> all right. You know what? Uh, fine. You're right. Yeah. Who doesn't want to help a child? Let's save five children. Tommy! All right, Michael, 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 one, two, three, four, five. Not so fast, just five. Thanks a lot, sir. Crazy, crazy. Uh, <laughs> it cuts off early, but what do you think happens next? He, he realizes he's got more money and he chases him to try and save more kids. Because suddenly, you know, he puts him off. No, no, I don't, I don't have time. But once he sees the need, boom, he's very motivated to, to suddenly do whatever he can to save more kids. I think that's true. That's true of us as well. We for, can forget the reality. That one of the reasons we're not bold is we can't see the need. We know it's good to share the gospel with Jesus, but we forget that people need to hear the gospel of Jesus. And once we realize people's status before God this is a message people need to hear, then I think we'll do whatever we can to share the life-saving news of Jesus with everyone. Even when, even when we face opposition, even when it divides people, we call people to join God's eternal kingdom. We don't have to fear because it's God's mission. And his mission is unstoppable. We get to be part of that. So good. So I'm going to pray. Let's pray together that God would help us as we do that. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for the gospel message of hope that you've given us. Thank you for your son, Jesus, his death, his resurrection for us. We pray that you'd help us to share this message with others. Help us to be bold uh, like Paul is. We pray that you'd be giving us, uh, be at work by your spirit, helping us to do this for your glory, Lord. Amen.